Our scripture lesson comes from Amos 4, 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Basham, who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring something to drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, the time is surely coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Through reaches in the wall, ye shall leave, each one straight ahead, and you shall be flung out into Harmon, says the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we are entering into a very exciting time uh, in our sermon series. We are starting a series on famous Amos, not the cookies. I thought about the cookies. Maybe there will be cookies at the end of this. It depends on how you all participate. I'm be like a teacher and try to entice you all to engage. <laughs> famous Amos. Amos is a, one of the uh, minor prophets, 12 of them in uh, our scripture. Uh, Amos is one of my favorites uh, because, well, he's just really intense about what he cares for, and, and he just goes all out. Uh, a little bit of background on Amos before we just get right into it. Uh, first of all, Amos was a farmer, okay? Very basic man, took care of sheep, uh, and, and, you know, he, he lived uh, about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. Mod uh, what's modern-day Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem then as well, of course. Uh, but he was just a farmer, nothing special about him, and yet he saw something. Now, how he heard about this or encountered this all the way in Jerusalem, I'm not sure, but he realized that in the northern kingdom of Israel, if you recall at this time, the, uh, Israel has been divided into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. Jerusalem's in the southern kingdom. He's a long way away from Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel. And he hears about how the people in Samaria are treating the people of their nation. And so he then travels from 12 miles south of Jerusalem all the way up to Samaria to speak to the wealthy class of Israel. And not just to like have a casual conversation with them. No, no, no. He brings down the hammer. And he's going to talk to them with truth and power. But here's the thing. While we consider him uh, in the book of the Twelve Minor Prophets, uh, he himself does not consider himself to be a prophet. In fact, in, in chapter 7, he says, I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. Um, what he's really saying is he's not part of the formal class of prophets, which would have made him like a true prophet in the eyes of the people. But that's not what he's concerned about. He's not trying to make a living doing prophecy and stuff like that. He's going to go back to farming his sheep. He just sees a present need in a community that's not even his own and feels like he needs to challenge those people. His primary concern is how uh, one group in society was treating another group, the ones who could not defend themselves. Amos is a prophet of powerful social justice. Much like every other prophet. Now, I've, I've been uh, in churches before. I've, I've been in a lot of churches in my life. Grew up in the church, interned in a bunch of churches. Uh, been all over the place in churches. Uh, this one's my favorite. Uh, 
I have been in churches before who have, who have told the pastor, which was not me at the time, uh, who have told the pastor, we don't want to hear about all this social justice mumbo-jumbo that you're throwing out there. We just want to hear about our, our faith journey and our faith in Christ, and we want you to teach us about that. None of this social justice stuff. And the prophet, uh, the prophet, wow, uh, the pastor, maybe that was a Freudian slip, uh, the pastor said, so you don't want me to use the Bible? They said, no, 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 we want you to use the Bible. And, and he said, have you heard what Jesus has to say in the Bible? It's social justice. Have you heard what the minor prophets have to say in the Bible? It's social justice. Have you heard what the major prophets have to say in the Bible? It's social justice. Have you read the Ten Commandments? It's social justice. In other words, the prophets uh, really hit the nail on the head by saying that justice is intrinsically linked in our faith. And, and that is uh, one of the reasons why I love the prophets, because they believe that the faith and the faithfulness of the people of God is directly entwined with how those people live for others on the basis of justice. Yeah, mishpat in the Hebrew. Oh, that's a good word. But there's one thing that distinguishes Amos most of all, apart from all the other prophets, and that is that he is looking directly at how the people with means, resources, wealth, neglect and even oppress the people without means, resources, wealth. So it's time to answer the seemingly obvious question of the day. Why is it so important to care for the poor? This is the call and response. I don't know, what do you think? Why is it so important to care for the poor? They're children of God. I think that's a great reason. <laughs> What's that? To give them hope? Sure. To meet their needs, absolutely. It's, it's how Jesus behaved, yes. <laughs> Any other thoughts? I'll, I'll tell you right now, there's, uh, all of these reasons are, are perfect and wonderful and, and absolutely true. And also, there is one very obvious reason why we should care for the poor. And the answer comes in a concept that we don't really pay a whole lot of attention to except for when it's impacting us. And it's uh, a notion called social stratification. Anybody ever heard this, word, this term before, phrase, expression? Social stratification. It's the way in which society is structured based on uh, socioeconomic status. In uh, the U.S., we have the, uh, we have the lower class, the lower middle class, the middle class, the upper middle class, and the upper class. That's our social stratification, different strata of socioeconomic status. Uh, this has been most directly observed in uh, Indian culture, not, not Native American indigenous people culture, uh, but the culture of people who live in India. Uh, they, they have a society that's very much based on social stratification, uh, but every single society has this. And social stratification points out a very particular part of society. And you might have heard this expression before, a chain is only as strong as 
its weakest link, yes. And so what uh, research uh, sociologists primarily and uh, socioeconomists, economists, wow, that was hard to say, uh, have, have really focused in on is how uh, that concept, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, plays into social stratification. And what we see is that we live in a society that is absolutely dependent on one thing. Can you guess what that is? Each other. We live in a society that is absolutely dependent on each other. What happens if nobody spends any money in a society? What's that? The economy crashes, absolutely. <laughs> what happens if everybody's spending a lot of money? Yeah, that's right, it booms, that's right. Uh, this is one of the reasons why during the pandemic, you know, the government sent out all of these payments to try to get more uh, cash flow into the economy. Uh, you know, whether, whether it works or not, is that's you know, your own perspective, but uh, that's what was trying to happen. There's this understanding that we are intrinsically linked with one another as a society, and every part of it depends on one another. Uh, you're going to the grocery store, right? And you're going to get the things you need to get it through the week or month or however frequently you go to the grocery store. How did those items get there in the grocery store? Someone else. That's right. By a truck. By a truck? Yes. There is, there is a phenomenal TED Talk out there, if you're a fan of podcasts or TED Talks or whatnot, of a man who went on a mission to thank every single person who made it possible for him to get his cup of coffee. And do you know what he found out? There are a lot of people involved in getting his cup of coffee. And I'm not just talking about the baristas or uh, the people who grow the beans in Colombia. Uh, I'm talking about the people who, uh, who make the packaging that the beans go in, the people who then uh, collect all of this and put it, on a, uh, put it in a shipping container, the people who get it from uh, that country into this country, the truck drivers who then uh, drive those beans uh, to the distribution center, Center, the people who paved the roads that those trucks drive on, the people who are the mechanics for those trucks to be able to operate to get those beans to this coffee shop. Uh, in other words, what he found out is that our society is so intrinsically linked with other people that if we don't care for those other people, that society collapses. So to answer that obvious question of the day as to why we care for the poor, why that's our mission, the, the most simple and pragmatic answer that I can come up with is it's the only way to sustain a society. We, we can be selfish with this for just a moment. If I want to continue being in a, in a comfortable situation, I have to care for the poor. Now, I like your answers better because they're far more selfless. But do you see why this is starting to become more and more important? If the people in our societal chain are not taken care of, the whole community begins to collapse. And the early church caught on to this very quickly. Uh, Acts chapter 2, they held all things in common so that there was no need among them because they, they understood the importance of one another. They understood why we take care of those in need. Because we need each other. Now, uh, there's a book that I, uh, 
had to read in seminary uh, for a class in missions, and it was a fascinating book, and probably the book that we argued about the most. And this book is called Just Give Money to the Poor. Fascinating title, right? It gives you the whole summary of the book right there. <laughs> that was uh, their premise for how we care for the poor. Now, this is a, they put this notion, just give money to the poor, in contrast to government structures of, uh, of welfare and aid and non-government organizations that do charity causes, and said that the easiest way for a society to take care of its people, particularly its most vulnerable populations, is to just give them money directly. And they had this concept that you could give a person one dollar, that's it, that's all it would start with, just give money to the poor, give them one dollar, and they could turn that into two dollars. A one dollar investment into a two dollar income. And this whole concept was built on the notion that, that uh, essentially, the government shouldn't be doing the church's job. And non-government organizations shouldn't be doing the church's job. Because I don't know if you know this, but if you can trace this back as much as you would like throughout Scripture, God is continuously telling the people, take care of the poor. Be there for the widow and the orphan and the stranger and the people who have nothing. And that's supposed to be what the church does. It was one of the first practices that the early church uh, adopted to care for the poor. And this book, Just Give Money to the Poor, was based on the notion that the government and nonprofit organizations, NGOs as well, uh, shouldn't be doing the church's job because it doesn't end up working very well. We start having all of these people who are very critical of uh, welfare causes and uh, you know, food stamps and stuff like that because, oh, people are just going to be lazy and start taking advantage of all of this. There, there's so much more to all of this than, than I could ever cover right here in this moment, but I just want you to take that notion from just give money to the poor and consider that just giving a dollar to someone in need, they could turn that one dollar into two. I want to tell you a story about what this looks like. Uh, growing up, I, I didn't grow up in a particularly wealthy family. We weren't very, we weren't poor. We would probably be considered lower middle class, right on the cusp of lower class uh, family, uh, to the extent that you know we knew the repo people. Yeah, uh, to that extent. And uh, so, but but we still we we managed to to make ends meet. Um, there was one Christmas in particular that I remember, you know, it was just not really presents. Which my sister and I didn't really care about. We enjoyed cardboard boxes more than, you know, remote control cars or whatever. Um, but there was this one particular Christmas where it was, it was really difficult. It was, uh, it was in 2009. Both of my parents had lost their jobs in 2008. Uh, and they were trying, you know, trying to pull everything back together. And, uh, and I, I guess people in the church that we were in knew about this somehow because Christmas Eve night, there was a knock on the door. And my dad, you know, my sister and I are already asleep, and my dad goes and opens this door, and sitting there is an enormous basket filled with breakfast foods and a couple of small toys. And that Christmas morning, 
was so special because somebody had dropped off this basket for us to be able to have a Christmas breakfast together, and so my sister and I would have a couple of toys for Christmas. Now, there was one additional thing in that basket, and it was a letter, and it kind of explained why this basket was brought. Because somebody cares for you. And because it's not supposed to stop right there. There was a challenge at the end of that letter that said, next year, we challenge you to give this basket to another family in need. And the whole uh, concept was supposed to be a cycle, an investment that once you got through the next year, you would be able to then pour into this basket and support another family in need. And it's a very simple thing, very simple. You know, the breakfast items, they don't cost a whole lot. It wasn't, it wasn't like that somebody spent like $500 to put this basket together or something like that. It was just a simple gesture that challenged our family to then do the same for another family next year. And we did, and it was so exciting. I got to uh, help my dad with Ding Dong Ditch that Christmas Eve uh, night as we dropped that basket off. But the very notion was that there's, there's nothing, no strings attached with all of this. We just want to care for those in need with what we have. As little as it might be, there is a way for the church to continue being the church. Most especially, there is a way for the people who are most comfortable in the church to be the church. This is where Amos gets his fire from. Our scripture lesson from Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. This is like a, a beautiful insult because like we can call somebody a cow today and it's still an insult. This is one of those insults that's like hung on for, two, uh, for almost 3,000 years, right? He's calling uh, these people cows, but not just any cows, cows of Bashan. Now, anybody here have been to Bashan? Yeah, probably not. It's because it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, <laughs> the region still does. Uh, Bashan was just north of, uh, of Palestine in what's a roughly modern-day Golan Heights, which if you've ever been to the Golan Heights, or Tel Dan is up in that region as well if you've been to Israel, it's a very lush place. I mean, gorgeous place. Flowing rivers, and, and the foliage is just like towering over you. Uh, there aren't many trees in Israel, uh, or th this portion of the Middle East. They're all like really sparse and small. This place is just like enormous with all of the foliage that's going on. And it's just, oh, it's, it's like walking into a completely different world. In this space, they raised the fattest and healthiest cows that anybody had ever seen. The cows were comfortable because they had all that they needed to thrive. And so Amos calls out, remember he's calling out the people in power in Samaria, the capital of Israel, and says, hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring me something to drink. That's not a juice box, mind you. He's essentially saying to these people who are sitting very comfortably. At this time, whenever he's uh, talking to the people in northern Israel, they're experiencing a time of 
really good prosperity, solid prosperity. And he's essentially saying to them, you have more than you need. Why won't you give some of that to those who have many needs? Better yet, why do you continue taking from those who have many needs? You see, the people in, in Samaria, the leadership of this day, uh, the wealthy class of this day, they weren't just sitting comfortable because they were sitting comfortable. They were sitting comfortable because they were oppressing the poor, inflicting heavy taxes on the poor for simple things like grain. They, they had the uh, advanced title loan shops set up everywhere with major interest charged. They had these uh, cash pawn shops set up everywhere where they could take advantage of those who were desperate for an advance on their paycheck just to be able to get through that month. And oh, how the wealthy class benefited. Oh, how they benefited. And so Amos calls them out. And this isn't the only time in the book of Amos. I just thought this was the most fun because he calls them cows. In chapter 2, verse 7, he says, You who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way. See how visual he's getting with this? Trample the head of the poor into the dust and push them out of the way for your own gain. Then, chapter 5, verse 11, uh, he talks about how the, the once again, using the, the same uh, analogy, but expounding upon it, he says, he talks about how the powerful trample on the poor by imposing burdensome taxes on things like grain so that the elites could use those funds of their unjust economic conduct to build lavish homes of hewn stone. Lavish homes built on the backs of the poor who are being crushed, trampled. And chapter 8, hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring ruin to the poor of the land. He's calling them out for their apathy and even disdain for the poor because of their wealth. They've set themselves apart. We are up here, they are down there, there's us and there's them, and these aren't as important as we are. They can suffer for our flourishing. Now, I think I can confidently say that we uh, as a church don't have uh, many people who are sitting atop ivory towers trampling on the heads of the poor in order to continue their lavish lifestyles. However, I want to challenge you with an old song by an... Uh, all-female African-American acapella group known as Sweet Honey and the Rock. In 1985, they, uh, they did this song, this ballad, if you will, called Are My Hands Clean? I want you to listen carefully to the words. Remember, 1985, so it's dated. I wasn't born yet, uh, so I don't get all of the references. Sorry. Uh, but hear what they're speaking about. They said, I wear garments touched by hands from all over the world. 35% cotton, 65% polyester. The journey begins in Central America, in the cotton fields of El Salvador, in a providence soaked in blood. Pesticide sprayed workers toil in a broiling sun. 
pulling cotton for $2 a day. Then we move on up to another rung, Cargill. A top 40 trading conglomerate takes the cotton through the Panama Canal, up the eastern seaboard coming to the U.S. of A. for the first time in South Carolina. At the Burlington Mills, joins a shipment of polyester filament courtesy of the New Jersey Petrol Chemical Mills of DuPont. DuPont strands of filament begin in the South American country of Venezuela. Oil riggers bring up oil from the earth for $6 a day. Then Exxon, the largest oil company in the world, upgrades the product in the country of Trinidad and Tobago. Then back into the Caribbean and Atlantic seas to the factories of DuPont on the way to the Burlington Mills in South Carolina to meet the cotton from the blood-soaked fields of El Salvador in South Carolina, Burlington factories hum with the business of weaving oil and cotton into miles of fabric for Sears, who takes this bounty back into the Caribbean Sea, headed for Haiti this time. May she one day soon be free. Far from the Port Al Prince Palace, third world women toil doing piece-worked Sears specifications. For $3 a day, my sisters make my blouse. It leaves the third world for the last time, coming back into the sea to be sealed in plastic for me, this third world sister. And I go to the Sears department store where I buy my blouse on sale for 20% discount. Are my hands clean? I wept when I first heard this. And it was in seminary. Same class I heard about just give money to the poor. Because it challenged me. It made me realize I'm a big discount shopper. It's the only way I could afford anything growing up. And those discounts came at the burden of other people. Now, yes, this anthem was from 1985. And yes, there have been improvements in labor laws. And yes, there have been improvements in wage distributions. But I want to ask you, has it been enough? Are my hands clean? You see, the challenge to care for the poor it's one that starts right here with us. And it's one that impacts every single choice we make because we are a society that depends on one another. I'm not sure about you, but I don't weave my own clothes. I don't know the people who do. But I imagine they're not being cared for as well as I am. And so my challenge for each and every one of us today is to care for the poor. However, I realized something the other day that made me really mad. Like it's been burning a, a, a hole of fire in my bones. I've been a really bad pastor. You see, I continue to ask our church to be the church for our community, but I don't feel like I've given a clear way for actionable steps. I tell you, care for the poor. And that's a bit of an ambiguous statement to make, to ask 
of you to ask of myself even. I thought, what would I do to care for the poor? So today, I want to give you an actionable step. I brought money. <laughs> it's still sealed by the bank. I haven't tapped into any of this. I'll say, it is my, it's my own money. I want to do this for our church today. I want to give you a dollar. I want you to take this dollar. I don't want you to give it back to the church. I'm passing this down. I do want you to consider making a one dollar investment in the life of someone who doesn't have as much as you have. A one dollar investment that might actually turn into two dollars. Maybe this is for that person who is on the corner of the road with their cardboard sign and their dog laying beside them. Maybe another person with them asking for a little assistance. Maybe it's for that person. Maybe it's for the waitress, when you tip her and you remember that she's making below minimum wage because that restaurant she works for has convinced themselves that it's okay to pay employees below minimum wage because they're going to make tips and that's a part of their wage. Maybe this is for that person that is in your neighborhood. Let's just come on hard times. Better yet, I may actually want to challenge you to do something big here. Do a matching grant. This is, this is from my own bank account. I, I'm not, not trying to brag, uh, but I did want you to know I'm not like pulling it out of the church funds. This is something that I want you to do. Maybe now you could add a dollar from your own bank account and give two dollars to that person. Because it matters. Because being the church is so much more than going to church. I know it's only one dollar. I know it's small. You know, that day that will never come whenever I start making an absorbent amount of money, I'll give you a lot more. But I think, I think a dollar can make a difference. And you know what? I, I, I've noticed here, I have a lot more. Come see me after. Get another. Maybe three. I'll give you five. If you feel like you know somebody who could use the rest of this, I'll give the rest of it to you. God calls us to care for the poor. It's time 
that we start acting more like the church and less like the cows of Bashan. Let us pray.